Stephanie Lambring began her songwriting and performing career as a teenager on the Nashville music scene. There she was discovered and signed as a songwriter with BMG and Carnival Records. She had four of her songs appear on the TV show Nashville, recorded by artists like Andrew Combs, Haley Witters, and Mary Brad. She finally tired of the factory-like music production environment of the traditional Nashville music scene and left. After several years, her calling as a songwriter led her to write, create, record, and release her 10-song album entitled Autonomy. Free of the confines and rules of the traditional Nashville songwriting scene, Autonomy is full of challenging emotional songs about deeply personal experiences that break the mold of traditional radio-acceptable themes. It is a compelling album that is hard to stop listening to. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and Backstory's mission is to help songwriters get found, discovered, and heard. We want you to play and share these episodes. And today I have the pleasure of having with me Stephanie Lambring. Welcome, Stephanie. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Stephanie, you have a new album out titled Autonomy. Can you Tell me, why'd you call it Autonomy? That's not one of the songs on the album. And kind of give me the motivation for that. Well, initially, it wasn't even on my radar at all to call it Autonomy. I had this running list of potential titles that were drawn from lyrics that are actually in the record. But one day it just occurred to me, Autonomy because I actually wasn't signed to a label. I had a publishing deal. I had publishing deals for five years. For me, it kind of turned into this song machine that really didn't work for me. So autonomy represented several things for me, but probably first and foremost, it was coming back to myself and writing the kind of songs that I love to write without the expectations of anyone else, without measuring it with the music row cutability factor, if that makes sense. It represents spiritual autonomy. That is definitely a theme that's explored in the album. It represents autonomy from societal and familial expectations. So it was just a word and a theme that made sense after I thought about it. And after it came to my mind, I thought, well, this is it. This is what it has to be called. Well, the album is a lot of things for me. I found it to be a beautifully challenging, jarring set of songs that I couldn't stop listening to. Just so gripping, but not conventional, per se, radio stuff, if you will. Let's talk about one of the first songs on the album, Daddy's Disappointment. Yeah, that song was the one I had to write to be able to write freely again. So I left my publishing deal in um, the fall of 2015, and then I went to bartending school, and I started waiting tables as a way to make money. I felt like I had to take the pressure off of being creative to make my money, just for my creative spirit. So anyway, I had started waiting tables in Nashville. Lots of country stars come in there, lots of songwriters. One of them in particular, Tom Douglas, I actually had written with one time whenever I had a publishing deal and he came into the restaurant quite a bit and started taking an interest in me and my career. One day he was doing his usual check-in and he said, anybody can write a song in two weeks. He basically challenged me to write a song and he left me his email address and he said, whenever I wrote something... I loved to send it to him. So I went home and it was like my soul, my spirit knew what I needed to write. It had to be this song. It was me processing my relationship with my dad and my relationship with music. And the two were kind of one and the same for a while whenever I was growing up. So part of the album 
uh, feels to me to be very confessional and autobiographical, and it's hard to listen to a song called Daddy's Disappointment. Perhaps there's no song that's a pure autobiographical song. There's always writer's license in what you do, but I imagine this is fairly autobiographical. (laughs) Yes, you would be correct in that. The song was kind of like a couple therapy sessions, probably, or a whole slew of them. You know, my dad is my number one fan. And whenever I started playing music, he saw the potential. I was 15. And I think he saw that and was like, oh, wow, this is something that she can pursue. Yeah, my parents, they were very, very supportive of me doing music. But then it kind of led to this situation where a lot of creatives, their parents want them to get a real job. Well, my parents were like, you have to do music. So it throws in this interesting dynamic, which is this song was me figuring out, am I doing music for myself or am I doing it for somebody else? Because I naturally had this inclination to sing and to write. But then whenever your parents want you to do something, you kind of don't want to do it. And I think many, many people have that like, I don't know if you call it rebellion, but just like that rub and you have to figure out what am I doing for myself and what am I doing for someone else? My dad was kind of like my stage mom (laughs) for a while. Yeah, no, it sounds like that in the song. When did you start writing songs and why did you start writing songs? Was it at the age of 15 when you learned your first three chords? That part is probably a little bit of a stretch. My dad gave me an electric guitar when I was 13. It was a Fender He played music in high school. So he was in a rock band called the Six Teens. And there were six of them and they were all 16. He definitely had an interest in music. So it was always around. I learned a couple chords then. And then whenever I was a freshman in high school, whenever I was 15, my class did this segment on folk music. And so I brought in my dad's guitar and I was practicing. That's whenever I really started getting into chords and all of that. And I just started singing. I wasn't really writing then, but that's like whenever I started singing and doing cover songs and playing at fairs and little country music shows around the area. But I started writing whenever I was 19. I've always had a knack for writing, but I started writing songs whenever I was 19. I was in a really bad car wreck the summer after I graduated from high school and I broke my ankle in five places. And I was set to go to Belmont University in the fall, which is known for many things, but among them, it's music and music business programs. We decided to put that off for a semester. As luck would have it, I also got dumped by my boyfriend at the time. And I was heartbroken and sleeping in a hospital bed in my parents' living room, going to community college classes that met at my high school. So it was not really my favorite season of life. And I had a vocal coach who told me that if I ever wanted to do anything in Nashville, I had to write songs. I had plenty of uh, inspiration with my breakup and I started writing. And then I recorded a couple simple versions of it. And I mailed him like a couple CDs (laughs) of songs that I'd written. Just to get back at him? (laughs) I thought I was, but I really don't think I was. (laughs) Did he respond and say, this is great stuff? Or are you still mad at me? Or can we get back together? (laughs) I think in my mind, like it might make him want me more. I think in his mind, he's probably like, who is this stalker girl? (laughs) So (laughs) that's how that went. But that's what started it, you know? The whole album is this bit of therapy. Like as a listener, I feel like I'm sitting on your therapy couch and not just you talking about your own sort of experiences that required your therapy, but I started to think it was an album about issues, but I realized that it's really an album about the origin of issues and the origin of baggage. And everybody has that in life. I don't care who you are, you know, you have issues and baggage and they come from a place. And these songs are about that place where the issues come from in my mind. I love that take on it. I love that you 
see that in the songs. Um, I've never really thought about it from that perspective, but that makes so much sense. And I'm probably going to keep thinking about that. Well, it's a challenging album, you know, and it's engrossing because it's so challenging. You do this deep dive into the human experiences and you take people to these uncomfortable places, frankly. I mean, you know, and Daddy's Disappointment sort of starts it off and we all come from a daddy. And, you know, I guess it's a different relationship for Daddy's girl than it is Daddy's boy, but it's similar in some respects. Yeah. And like, whenever I sent this song to Tom Douglas, he said that he related to it as a father and as a son. That really meant a lot to me. Like, I don't want this to be a song that is just like poo-pooing my dad. You know, it's, I was terrified for him to hear it for a long time um, because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Because, you know, especially the older I get, the more I realize like, our parents just want to do better. They want to do the best they can. They want to do better than their parents. And from what I understand, like my dad's parents didn't really set expectations for him. And I think whenever, you know, I was being raised, they wanted to make sure that, you know, they wanted me to have some kind of motivation and set a standard. And that worked well with my personality type. Like I'm an achiever, you know? So, I don't know. I think a lot of people will see themselves in the song and I hope just like find some kind of understanding no matter where you are. So have you played the song for your dad? I have. Yes. He's, he's heard it for a couple years now. So he knew that I was nervous for him to hear it, but he said it's a really good, important song. And I think that you should play it. You got daddy's blessing to play daddy's disappointment. I got daddy's blessing for daddy's disappointment. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Backstory Song. If you like our podcast, you can become a patron at our Patreon page, where you will receive bonus interview tracks with your favorite songwriters and early release access to upcoming episodes. It is only $3 per month or the price of a cup of coffee to become a Backstory Song patron. Let's talk about another sort of opposite end of the spectrum song on your album, Autonomy. And that is the song, Mr. Wonderful, who, as the song progresses, seems to not turn out to be so wonderful. Oh, yes. Most of it is based from my experience in a controlling relationship about five years ago, or that ended five years ago, rather. I started writing it about three years after we broke up it took that amount of time to process and just put some words to it that ended up giving me more grace for myself. But a lot of those abuser types are sneaky, like they're charming and smart and engaging. They just pull out all the stops. And that relationship was definitely a huge learning experience for me. Yeah, the song Mr. Wonderful starts out sounding like someone who's really, really good and ends up by the end being really, really bad. That's how those relationships go. There's this term called love bombing. If you read anything about verbally or physically abusive relationships where someone just like immediately in love with you and I mean, telling you all the good things and doing these grand gestures for you. I mean, they're winning you over. So that's where the song begins. And then there's this point where it gets confusing because on one hand, in the same day, they could be showering you with all the loving things, but then you're getting these covert messages or sometimes overt messages from them. Like, how dare you have plans that don't involve me? They usually aren't saying that outright, but it's this weird headspace to be in that I think I judged women that were in controlling or abusive relationships because I thought, oh, that wouldn't be me. I'm not that girl. I have a whole new school of thought on that now. Yeah, the song really turns it. I guess it's kind of the break, the lyric, every day gets harder to crawl out of the confusion, red flag, anger, good behavior, which is the illusion. I love that lyric, red flag, anger. 
good behavior. It just kind of encapsulates the notion of what I think the psychologists call intermittent positive reinforcement. And perhaps, you know, what is red flag anger, Stephanie? It doesn't have to be really obvious to be red flag anger. Like sometimes it's someone getting enraged and throwing things or if someone gets physical and sometimes it's that quiet anger, which is almost scarier because you can't, it's like this seething. That was more my relationship. My relationship did not get physical, but I encountered that like quiet seething anger, just the silent treatment. I feel like that can even be red flag anger, the withdrawing to get what he wanted or just like those glimpses that you get into their true persona that they try so hard to hide with their false self, the Mr. Nice Guy self. Yeah, I saw anger just anytime he didn't get his way. But then it was all confusing because then we'd have a great day together, you know, or he would lay off the things that were bothering me. Like for me, it was always him pressuring me to get married. When can we get engaged? All of that. It was really interesting. Yeah, I guess something deep down inside you had some question marks about the answer to that question about Mr. Wonderful. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I'm naturally an anxious person, which I think kind of helped me out in that regard to get out of that relationship because I always felt unsettled because I bring my own stuff to the table. I mean, we all do. I think the scary thing for me was, so I spent half the relationship looking at my stuff that I bring and trying to change what I could change on my end. And then I realized that that wasn't going to be enough. But then at the same time, like being more aware of how he was, I got scared whenever I could understand where he was coming from, like some of the crazy things, you know? So that part was really scary for me. It's a big mirror. That relationship was a huge learning experience for me. Let's talk about the music, both in this song and a little bit on the album. In, in this song, Mr. Wonderful, you start with an organ and kind of a fuzzy guitar, which kind of is one of your signatures, I feel like, on this album. So creating this album was just an experimental experience. I knew more of what I didn't want than what I did want, if that makes sense. That was kind of what helped us put it together. We did use a lot of like fuzzy guitars with the way that I write. I didn't want a sleepy singer songwritery record. So we brought out the Mellotron like crazy and a lot of kind of like grungy, I don't think is the word, but yeah, the fuzzy guitars just to add some attitude. That was all my producer, Teddy Morgan. That was all him, the Mellotron and the guitars on this one and Daddy's Disappointment. Although I did do the acoustic on Daddy's Disappointment. But yeah, he kind of added in that wherever it felt like the songs told us they needed it. I definitely think there's a grungy tone to the theme of autonomy. You know, you're not talking about comfortable subject matter here. It's really uncomfortable songs and being alienated for a wide variety of reasons similar to what you would find on a Pearl Jam or Joan Osborne or a Nine Inch Nails type of record, you know, <laughs> by Trent Reznor, where it's like, you know, this darkness of the world. And there's certainly a darkness to Mr. Wonderful. But let's talk about perhaps one of your more controversial songs, and videos, frankly, the joy of Jesus or just joy of Jesus. Yeah, whew, that was the song I was most nervous to release, for sure. One reason being that I'm from Southern Indiana, kind of a conservative area. I grew up in the church and, you know, I feel like, especially since I haven't been releasing music, a lot of people from back home remember me as the really happy, nice, smart girl that played piano at church on Sundays, you know? So I was really nervous about the reception back home. And that was something that factored into it for me. I don't know why that was, well, I guess I could probably analyze that, but that was like a big hurdle for me. I was afraid of what my parents would face if people heard this song. And then 
I was also afraid of like people hearing the song and then trying to save me and like having an agenda with me. And then on the other side of things, like I use some strong language in there. And one of them is a slur for a gay man. I was wondering how we would talk about that slur for a gay person in this song. And it, you know, struck me as something controversial. This whole song is controversial. I mean, to talk about the joy of Jesus and everybody has their own notion of what that means to them, but then to talk about homosexuality in that regard and going down on the quarterback. This is, this is intense stuff, Stephanie. (laughs) You are not kidding about that. Yeah. That was definitely the title of the song. Some people are going to see that and think, Oh, this is going to be great. Like, let's play this for our kids on our drive home. You know, like (laughs) it's definitely not that. But yeah, it definitely delves into some intense subject matter. And I chose to use the uh, slur word. I may change my mind about this one day, but for now, it felt like deep pain requires strong words. And I was trying to paint as painful, I suppose, of a picture as I could just to try to, you know, have someone connect with the character. And I think that has been the reality for a lot of gay people. I think I remember being told growing up that you shouldn't talk about religion, politics, or sex, at least at the dinner table or in in polite company. And in this song, you touch on all three of those things in a in a very controversial way which kind of why I like it frankly um, <laughs> a friend of mine once told me that he always brings up religion politics and sex in conversations when he goes on sales calls in the business environment and I said oh my goodness how, how could you do that and he said because it evokes an emotional response in the person you're talking to, and you can size them up. You can actually gauge who they are and start to understand each other at a deeper level if you bring up these three topics. And of course, you bring them up in one, all three in one song here. <laughs> so let's start with politics, um, if I may. The first verse makes an allusion to Trump Pence 2016 conservative Christian. You're in Nashville and perhaps a heart of conservative Christianity in America or not far from it. And, you know, to actually throw that out there might not make this a radio friendly song. Oh yeah. It's definitely not a radio friendly song. So the first verse is written about my friend's experience. My friend, Elise Davis, she's a really cool Americana rock girl. She is so good, but she was trolled on Twitter by this man and she looked him up and it said, Trump Pence 2016, conservative Christian, I hate feminists or something like that. Like, (laughs) so whenever she told me that story, I already had the song concept in my mind. I knew immediately, well, there's my first verse. After finishing the song, I was like, can I put that in there? I mean, not can, I already did, but It also goes against like songwriting 101, not to specifically timestamp a song. I talked to a good friend of mine and she said, if you can't think of anything better, don't change it. So it felt like that was supposed to be there. But I was concerned about putting Trump Pence 2016 because I didn't really want that to limit the song. But a friend of mine told me that if I couldn't think of anything better than not to change it. So I didn't think of anything better. I tried, but it just felt like throughout the course of writing that song, that was always there. And like the second my friend Elise told the story, I knew, so I didn't change it. I was a little bit worried that when people would hear the song, they would hear the word Trump and then just not listen to any of the rest of it and miss the heart of it entirely. And, you know, I guess with any art that you put out there, that's going to happen. That line is what has gotten me some angry emails whenever I've played it out at shows, which I've only done maybe, you know, 10 times. Well, it's got everything that people can get angry about, that's for sure. And and so I kind of like it for that reason that, you know, this is what artists are supposed to do is actually provoke thinking and provoke 
conversation and provoke that emotional response. And, you know, if you have to be political or if you have to bring up religion or you have to talk about sex, that's kind of the history of music, frankly. I like that you have a very sparse guitar. And is that a cello on the song? It's Mellotron, which is like, we use that thing on so many of the tracks. The Mellotron was our go-to. It sounds like a cello for sure. And so, you know, if you ever write a song called Joy of Jesus, of course, it's going to evoke hymnals or songs sung in church, choir songs, I think, you know, and the chorus especially has that hymnal choir-like feel to it. Yeah, we definitely wanted that. And whenever my friend Shannon Wright came in to sing background vocals, like that's what she was thinking. She had some like very choir, her voice is not choir at all. But her harmony idea, she was going there. And so we just kind of built on that. Um, definitely wanted to evoke that sort of vibe, if you will. But the whole album has wonderful harmonies. Talk to me about that. I believe in this song, they come in the break where you have a lot of ooh, ooh, oohs with echoey flavor. Yeah, well, harmonies are such a big part of this record. I love singing harmonies. I did most of them on the album. And it's fun for me to tastefully my producer and I would just kind of see where they would fit in and um we would put too many on there and then take away and then just use whatever seemed to make sense at the end but to me harmonies are just such it's another instrument you know it adds another dimension it's one of those things that a little bit too much can really take you out of the moment so it's a skill to know what to leave alone, and what to build on. So do those just come to you instinctively? Do you write them? You, you have this ooh, ooh, oohs during the break? I think you ooh when you know the song needs something, but you don't think it needs a wordy bridge. It feels like an instinctive thing. But then the second verse is very much about gay rights, and, and you made a video that kind of a highlights that about the song. So tell me, where did that come from? This video was a really cool full circle moment for me. Whenever I was looking for someone to direct it, my friend Elise, who I wrote the first verse about, she directed me to her husband, who is a wonderful video director. And he actually used to be a worship leader that kind of got disillusioned by the church I met with him and the concept for the video was mostly him. I mean, I told him a couple of things that I had in my mind, but he came up with that. And I think it was during our second coffee meeting, or he asked me if I knew of a couple that would maybe want to get married for this wedding scene. And immediately I thought of my friend Blake, who had experienced, he's been married to a woman, he's experienced conversion therapy. And then he had come out about a year prior to this meeting that I was having with the director. I said, oh, Blake and his boyfriend would be perfect. Also, they're both really good looking, so that doesn't hurt. And I was like, well, but I haven't talked to him in a long time, but I will ask him, you know, it might be kind of weird, but okay, I'll ask him. Well, then probably like 15 minutes later, this woman barges into the coffee shop where we're meeting and She's like, who has this silver Nissan? I can't get in my car. Can you move? The parking spaces were like super tight. So this guy stands up and it's my friend Blake (laughs) that we were talking about. I look at Jason, the director, and I was like, holy cow, that's the guy. That felt like the universe being like, this is a good thing. You should see this video through with Jason and you definitely need to ask your friend Blake. And so eventually I... I couldn't ask him that day. I I think I was a little spooked by the coincidence or whatever it was, but he and his boyfriend agreed to be in it. And it was just like such a cool experience. And I think healing for everybody. Yeah, no, it's a, a message of tolerance, I think, which is one that we need in our society right now. Yes. Joy of Jesus. Thank you, Stephanie, for bringing that to us. Backstory Song's mission is to help songwriters and their work get found and discovered so they can make a living and keep on creating great songs. The best way to pay a songwriter is to listen to their songs. 
Unfortunately, with the decline of radio listeners, songwriters who live off royalties do not make the same royalties they used to. Please help out the Backstory songwriters by listening to their songs on our playlist. Share Backstory song episodes with your friends on your social media and encourage them to do the same. By liking and sharing Backstory song on your social media, you'll be helping the songwriters on this podcast. Let's talk about Pretty. All right. This is uh, kind of a body shaming song. Is that accurate? Yeah. Or body image issues song. Probably the effects of body shaming song. <laughs> yeah, this kind of gets to my point. The song is not about issues. It's about the origin of the issues and the origin of the issue of not feeling pretty. I think... Part of the reason I wrote this song was I think body positivity is great and people saying you're beautiful how you are. But if I'm being honest, like that doesn't do it for me. To me, it was more healing to go to the root, which I guess touches on, you know, what you've said about the record. To me, I know that I needed to go where it originated as opposed to like something that you can tell yourself. That just seems kind of like a Band-Aid. And I think it can be deeper than a Band-Aid. But for me personally, like going to the source tends to yield more healing. You know, I remember about, oh, probably five years ago, I was reading this old journal that I had from whenever I was 10, 11. And so many of the journal entries, they would end with, will I ever be pretty in various ways of asking that question. And it was really interesting to me that at that age, that was my focus. And then like kind of how that stayed with me in various ways as I got older. Yeah, it was something that I think was just necessary for me to write for little girl Stephanie and then ended up being for me now, 34-year-old Stephanie. It's interesting because the first verses about bullying and being bullied in elementary school. We had Steve Seskin on the show who wrote Don't Bully Me, which Mark Wills recorded and I think was nominated for Song of the Year, the year it was released. And that led to Peter Yarrow starting the Operation Respect, which is, and now Steve has played that song in I think over 30,000 elementary schools around the world. And it's led to a whole anti-bullying educational movement. You talk about what it felt like, I guess. Is this an autobiographical song? Yes. Every word is autobiographical, this song. And so you had issues with food. I don't know if it's fair to say you don't really mention the words bulimia or anorexia or anything in there, but you certainly say I stuck fingers down my throat, which is probably not a natural act. No, um, definitely. Here's the thing. I, I lost about 30 pounds between my sophomore and junior year of high school after a has-been uh, Nashville artist had told me, you know, you look like a million bucks. If you got to this weight, you would look like 20 million and I was trying to be a country star at the time. So I lost the weight and it wasn't like I ever limited myself to like 500 calories or something, but I was very strict. I think after I lost the weight, I tried to eat a thousand calories or less. So, I mean, that is still pretty limiting. And I tried bulimia, but I... I wasn't very good at that. So I just... <laughs> oh, good, good for us that you weren't good at <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> but I did stick fingers down my... I did stick fingers down my throat. It just didn't work for me. So I preferred to not eat, you know? That was my preferred way of dealing with it. But the thing is, like, I never got to an unhealthy weight. I was at, like, an ideal weight for someone who's 5'4". You know, that's the scary thing. But... I lost my, I don't know if this is weird to talk about, but I lost my period for six months because I didn't, I wasn't eating enough. But outwardly, I looked, everyone was telling me I looked great. Everyone was telling me, you know, wow, how'd you do it? And I got all this praise. And meanwhile, I'm like hungry and miserable, you know, at the same time, like high off the drug of people telling you how good you look. Wow. wow. Yeah. The song finishes with, I step up and let some number make it a good or bad day. I'll be damned if I'll ever be pretty. And 
you know, I thought this was either about counting calories or weighing yourself and looking at that number and how so many people who are obsessed about this issue, those numbers are the things. Is that where that's coming from? Definitely. Um, for me, it's the scale. And that's still something I deal with. Like I can still obsessively weigh myself. I don't know if it's like, I don't count calories anymore. I don't purge. I don't do any of that. But like, yeah, that's still like something that even though I'm at a much healthier place, I'm still not at like the ultimate healthy place. I'm hardwired almost to feel like skinnier is better, you know. Kind of made me sad to hear the final song, I'll Be Damned If I'll Ever Be Pretty. Should that matter? Should it matter? No. Does it matter? Yes. Can't stop it from mattering, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like you can know in your head what really matters and you can say it for days but that's not the core it's just always going to be there on some level and i think it's okay to acknowledge that you know what i mean because if you're black and white thinking about physical looks they don't matter at all they have nothing to do like reality is they do and so i think you have to make peace with the uh it's not 100% one way or the other you know and you have to have grace for yourself for not being a hundred percent, this doesn't matter. I just don't think that that's realistic. That's just my opinion, but I don't think that that's realistic. Well, I think even pretty people can do ugly things. Oh my God. Yes. That's, that's a totally different, in my mind, like that's a totally different area. Holy cow. Yes. Pretty people can sometimes do the worst things because they didn't have to develop a personality to like... I mean, not, not always, but you know what I'm saying? Like it, that is not the end all be all. And I, that's not what I'm trying to say in that last line either. Mm -hmm. What uh, are you trying to say with the song pretty? I think I'm just trying to say like, I'm with you. I've been there too. Like, that's all like, let's cry about all the things in our lives that have made us wired this way. And I get it. You know, that's what I'm trying to say. Let's talk about the last song on your album, Autonomy. It's called Birdsong Hollow. This is a really, really sad, sad song. Yeah, this song was so sad. I didn't feel like I could put anything after it on the record. One of my favorite viewpoints in the Nashville area is from the Natchez Trace Bridge. It's about probably 20, 25 minutes southwest of Nashville. But it's this beautiful bridge that looks out over this gorgeous valley. And, you know, you go out there and people are taking pictures and for Instagram and legitimate photo shoots happening. There's usually a drone. It's that kind of like stunning scenery. But every time I go to the bridge, there's this sign that haunts me. And it says, there's still hope call anytime. And then there's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number underneath it. And I don't know, it always kind of spoke to me. But then at a certain point, I thought it just called to me to write a song about it. Every time it just like jarred me and it made me think of this like alternate story that this place that this Instagram happy place, the alternate story, the dark side of that beautiful place. And then I looked it up and it's considered part of the National Park Service. It has some of the highest numbers of suicide victims from that bridge. And I just, I felt called to write about it. Is it called Birdsong Hollow? Yes. The valley itself is called Birdsong Hollow. It's such a ironic title. You know, you can picture this beautiful place with birds singing. And this is a place where people decide they can't take it anymore. I thought about that too, like my wheel spinning for this song, just like the name of the place and how vastly different that was from being in that dark, dark place. And then it also made me think about like the fallen souls finally singing after they've found some kind of peace. Like it kind of made me think of that. That's probably a dark way to look at it, but that's definitely like, one place my mind went. That's kind of in the break. Was that 
where the, you brought the mellotron in, there's these twinkling keys or this chorus and this church choir again, which is like transformative in the song because it just takes you to another place musically. That, that was definitely the idea. The choir voices are the mellotron, and I thought they were perfect for taking it where we wanted it to go. That ethereal, you know, kind of ghostly choir. Yeah, this line just kills me. Sometimes you can hear them sing a chorus of the silent screams. Yeah. For many people, it's like a silent illness, you know. In writing this song, I wanted to capture it. I wanted to do justice to suicide victims and their families. And I watched this documentary called The Bridge, which a crew set up cameras on the Golden Gate Bridge for a year. I think the only way they were approved to do it was to tell them they were watching birds. In reality, they were capturing people's last moments of life. And then they found, like some people didn't do it. They caught some people talking, some of those that were in a dark place, talking them off the ledge, literally. And um, they went and talked to those people's families. They talked to people that had survived the jump. They talked to the suicide victims' families. It was a really, really interesting insight into that headspace. Well, it is a headspace. And the song starts in the first verse with, you know, the parents or the father recognizing that his child has this ideation of doing this. And, you know, I think it's very rare that someone's Suicide does not have some signals of some mental unwellness that the world around them can see, you know? And so it's almost like there's this feeling at the end that it was inevitable, which is, you know, makes it even more sad. You know, such a sad song. In watching that documentary, it seemed like a common thing that many of the suicide victims had talked and talked about it, which I found like just terribly sad. And then almost like, some of their family members almost had a defeated feeling about it. Like what you said, it like that it was un- inevitable. I actually um, drew a lot of inspiration for this first verse, especially I drew from one father who was particularly insightful about his son's condition. He had taken out the recycling that morning and then, you know, he noticed it wasn't taken back in. So when the dad got home, he knew like something was up. Or he knew what had happened. And then he also said, for some, the body is a temple, but for some, it's a prison. And that put a knife in my heart. What he had to say was so powerful. I actually found him on Facebook and uh, I sent him the song a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I, I fi- figured out that the father's name and I, I just wanted him to know that like, I had written a song that was kind of, in, that was partially inspired by his son's story, and I asked him if he wanted to hear it. And what did he say? He said he would love to hear it. So I sent it to him, and he told me it was a beautiful, poignant story about someone's last day and thanked me for sharing it with him. So I felt like I needed to do it for some reason, just, you know, before it was released into the world. It just felt like the right thing to do. He seems to have a lot of insight into, he has more understanding than maybe a lot of parents might about that, of that kind of situation. But do you have any words of hope for either people who are thinking about this or people who are surviving the aftermath of this? If ending your life is something that's weighing on you, I just implore you to talk about it. Talk about it with people you you love. Call the hotline. Just, I just think that we need to share our burdens more than we do. And um, I don't know, like I, I don't have the answers, but I just think if you can muster up the strength to talk about it with somebody to do that. Have you ever felt this way? No. Well, that's good. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. I've had, you know, I've had moments where, like, oh, 
if my life were just over, I wouldn't have this anxiety right now. Just as a very, you know, a very anxious person, I have those moments from time to time. But I think the differences with people that it really weighs on, like they think about it, like how they're going to do it. And I've never had that. I've had moments of like wanting to escape acute pain, but uh, not to that extent, no. Well, Birdsong Hollow, it's a very challenging song, but I think one people should listen to. Thank you for listening to Backstory Song. If you like our podcast, you can become a patron at our Patreon page, where you will receive bonus interview tracks with your favorite songwriters and early release access to upcoming episodes. It is only $3 per month or the price of a cup of coffee to become a Backstory Song patron. So, Stephanie, I listened to the whole album, Autonomy, and I have to say, the song that I thought has the most pop, radio-friendly appeal, or perhaps internet appeal, was a song called Fine. Tell me about this. Yeah, that song definitely has a different tone than the rest of them. I had the first verse written a couple of years ago. I'd been at my grandma's funeral, and one of my relatives said, Steffi, now we just have to get you married. I mean, at her funeral lunch. I was kind of bothered by that. You know, I'd always felt this like pressure to get married and have kids and didn't really have a desire for either. And back at that time, I wouldn't even really say that out loud. But I think writing that song kind of helped me process how I was really feeling. And the first verse is a conversation with myself, really leaning into the questions that society asks of you, the societal pressures and like, how do I feel about that? And if I don't follow along with that, then is my life less valuable? That's kind of how that started. I always kind of consider myself as a free spirit with an anxious mind. My soul is very gray and like, not gray in a dull way, but just like, open and no pressure and you do what you want. But my mind craves the black and white, you know, and I think that's a battle that I'll always fight on some level. So this song was basically my free spirit talking to my anxious mind and thinking about writing the chorus. I was just thinking, what would I like to hear from someone rather than, is it your goal to get married? Like you and your boyfriend have been together for a while if this is a goal of yours, then clock is ticking, you know, instead of hearing that, what did I really need to hear? And so that's where the essence of this song comes from. So whatever you're doing, you're doing just fine. Exactly. You know, as I said, I had the first verse written a while back and then hadn't really touched it. But then whenever I was writing Birdsong Hollow a little over a year ago, I needed a break from that song. That one was such a doozy to write. I would go back and forth writing those two songs. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Arguably most hopeful, happiest song on the record, and then probably the saddest. So I was writing both of them at the same time. So it's kind of like this oxymoron conflicting thing of your own brain that goes from being a carefree artist to an anxiety-ridden person at the same time, all the time. That's me in a nutshell right there. <laughs> oh, is that right? Okay. Well, I'm glad we got to know you. <laughs> I'm more secure as a person now than ever before, but I think that that is definitely always going to be there on some level. As I Google what other health ailment is bothering me today, you know, it's just, it just is what it is. You have to laugh about it. Do you feel there are pressures on you to get married and have children beyond your own familial pressures? Honestly, I feel less familial pressure now, I guess, as I'm embracing music more. So it's probably mostly from society rather than family. I think that there's this unspoken and spoken expectation that society has. You know, your life will be more fulfilling when you have kids or when you find a partner to spend the rest of your life with you know, relationship is so important and I could be with someone the rest of my life, but like I, at the same time, I don't have the desire to be with one person forever. Maybe that conflicts. I don't know, but 
I just don't see things as having to be locked in stone. And me feeling like that and feeling kind of alone in that because just seeing friends getting married and whenever you grow up, you're taught that there's the one. And when you find the one, our culture feeds us this fairy tale story. I mean, for me, it was in my late 20s, started unraveling, you know, or I started um, picking it apart, not and seeing it for having a more realistic point of view. But yeah, I think society puts that pressure on us to live a certain way and feeling alone in my less conventional desires created a lot of anxiety for me. I want to be different. I like that. I think I'm an Enneagram four individualist, but then it's like, oh, if I'm too different, then what's wrong with me? People are going to be asking what's wrong with me. Is there something wrong with me? It's this interesting dance. I think whatever you're doing, you're doing just fine, Stephanie. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Stephanie, I usually ask songwriters if there's a song that they've written, if they could pick any voice or band to play that song, what would you pick? If I could pick any artist to sing one of my songs, oh goodness. Okay, this might sound super weird, but I kind of want Jason Isbell to sing my song, Somebody Else's Dress. Like that's what came into my mind. Fantastic. Jason, if you're out there, please record this for us, for all the Backstory Song listeners. And this is a great idea. Well, I have to thank you, Stephanie, for joining us at Backstory Song. And I have to thank DJ Wyatt Schmidt. He's out there. And my social media director, MC Owens. I have to thank some of my listeners, Andrea Vallis, for giving me a like. Appreciate all the help we can get in sharing our music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Backstory Song. Stephanie, is there anything you'd like to wrap us up with? Well, I just want to thank you for having this like really thoughtful conversation with me. It's been cool to kind of dive deeper, and you've made me think about some different things about the songs that I wrote, you know? And I think that that was a really cool experience for me. So thank you for having me.